You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, what have you been doing over the break? I was chaperoning a field trip to London, Paris, and Berlin. That is way better than the field trips like I went on as a teacher. We went to like the zoo and then I had to take people back because they were having snowball fights. Oh, yeah. No, we couldn't really take people back because I imagine it would be very expensive. Uh, luckily, they were very well-behaved students. <laughs> it was kind of an amazing trip. Berlin, I think, was one of my favorite cities. Have you been? I have. I I was fortunate enough to do some backpacking right after I graduated undergrad. Oh, fun. And so, yeah, yeah, I got to do Berlin. It's, it is. It's so full of history. The history there is kind of ominous, though, right? It's so, yeah. It, and it's like even the architecture tells history, right? Because you have like the eastern side of Berlin, which is like old communist buildings, you know, like very 70s, 60s, 70s, like very concrete. And then you have these like new modern buildings. Uh, and it's just so different, but it, the story that it tells is just kind of awesome. And being there with my students, when they were, you know, asking questions like, why are these buildings different? That was really cool. One of the things that we did, which was interesting, or it was good, we went to the Jewish Museum. Have you been to the Jewish Museum? In Berlin? In Berlin, yeah. No, I don't think I did. It's, I mean, it's an amazing museum. It's off-putting in so much that some of the, particularly when they're talking about the Holocaust, the floor itself is at an angle and it makes you feel uneasy. In just the fact that the building architect, the designer did that, I mean, for a, you know, a topic that already is emotionally, you know, difficult to then deal with like a, an oddly difficult terrain, it, it really reflected, I think, you know, learning and, and teaching about the Holocaust. Yeah, that was I was just out at the Holocaust Museum in DC recently and and it seems like the architecture is very purposeful to kind of, you know, help you think about some of the parts of it. But it's just you know, I think one thing for me as a teacher is we we teach about difficult stuff like the Holocaust and slavery other topics. Right. But it is weird to think about the tone we even set when we start those conversations. You know what I mean? Because it's like even the wrong tone during those discussions feels like you're dishonoring how to talk about that. It's difficult. Like, I don't know. if How do you prepare teachers I, to do that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't really don't know how if I was prepared uh, when I started doing it. It's obviously a different tone that I take when I talk about, like, you know, the 1860, 1860 election in the U.S., right? I can be a little bit jokey there, a little bit. But yeah, when we talk about something like slavery, you can't, I mean, you just don't. Like you need to honor, right. you know? But yeah, I've never had training in how to how to frame that type of discussion. Well, we're lucky today. We're bringing in somebody today who can help us think about teaching difficult knowledge, uh, which is a phrase that he's bringing into the podcast. And he's going to help explain what he means by that and how you you know, what advice he can give to teachers to think about and, and address these issues. So welcome to the podcast, Jim Garrett. Thanks for having me. 
we're thrilled that you could come. Well, I'm just listening to what you were both just talking about and the and the architecture of the museum spaces to the Holocaust. And that's right. Like I, re- I was in South Africa in the summer of 2007, so it's been a while now. But going to all the apartheid museums there, I was so impressed by the way that the architecture frames our understanding of those things. And the big question I had when I was there is, I can't afford to take all of my students to South Africa to experience this. What would the analog be to have a classroom situation that was set up to get somebody off balance, like you're saying with the with the, with uh, the angled the floor? Yeah. yeah, what would the analog be in a classroom? Because we can't tilt the floor, but what are the things that we could do to represent that sort of experience that's not just reading a textbook and saying like, oh, this was so bad, but what are the other ways to invite an encounter with that historical situation, even current situation? I think we should talk to architects about being able to tilt the floors, by the way. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's make schools a, a little more unbalanced. Yeah. Well, Jim, before we, we dig into this more, can you tell us a little about yourself and, and your background in education? Yeah. So I um, I grew up in Michigan. I'm from Michigan. I, um, I went to Michigan State University for my undergraduate degree and then got my teaching certification there in, in secondary social studies. I taught in the area at a high school called Mason High School, where I was fortunate enough to teach for four years. I taught economics all those years. I taught world studies. I taught psychology. And then I I developed and taught a standalone social studies elective called media studies. That was really exciting. I I split that class into two. First half, we learned we learned about critical media literacy and then kind of introduced them to structural vocabularies of race. So structural racism or class structures. And we talked about other social issues like sexuality and gender. And then the second half of the class, they had to make documentary films that investigated one of those big issues as it played out in their schools. Oh, so wow. they did interviews people, they did interviews with administrators, and then we screened them for the entire school community. So teachers and students and administrators and board members would come as well. That was really, that was really an exciting time. Friend of the podcast, Renee Hobbs would be really happy with your media literacy work. So we've had her on a few times and she's doing great work in getting it into schools, but it often doesn't make its way into the formal curriculum anywhere. That's right. And one of the things that one of the things that I think we need so desperately, and I think some of the new research coming out of a I think people would recognize the name Joseph Kahn. He's done citizenship um, education work. Um, one of the things that he's finding is that media education is one of the big things that we need to be literate of political content that we find online through social media and et cetera. So after I taught, I did my my doctoral work at Michigan State University, where I thought I was going to continue studying media, media studies. That was going to be my sole focus. But then I started thinking like, well, I guess I'm kind of interested in the way that all knowledge is mediated, like not just in terms of mass media, but also in terms of our own personal mediation. So I started learning about psychoanalysis, which is not a very popular theory in the United States, but it was something that I was really excited about when I started learning about it. And and I stumbled upon this literature and called difficult knowledge. And that's Deborah Britzman's term. And that term is about the way that we teach and learn about historical trauma. Um, and also 
the ways that we'd rather not know about a lot of those things, um, not only from history, but also currently. So that's like, that's kind of the, the background that took me up through becoming a education researcher. I taught psychology for a couple of years, and I can tell you that you want to talk about uncomfortable spaces. It's teaching high school kids about Freud. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like some of them are mature enough. And then sometimes you're like, can we really go there and discuss this? Can they handle this? And there was instances where they could not. Yes. I'm not surprised to hear that. I think, you know, Freud is Freud is a contested figure. But I think what's interesting is that while that while he's gone and the practice of psychoanalysis has gone largely out of favor in the United States, it's really vibrant in Europe and especially in South America. So um, it's not like it's not like a lot of the stuff that people think they know about it from movies, you know, um, where it's all about our mothers and body parts and things. That is always my go to psychology like impression. Tell me about your mother. Mm hmm. <laughs> So the, but the interesting thing is, is that a lot of that stuff, when we learn about upheaval or calamity or current war, is that we're often invited to think about our own vulnerability because we tend to imagine ourselves in similar situations. And as soon as we, as soon as we're there, we often are invited to think about our earliest relationships. And so Freud gives us metaphors that we might be more or less comfortable with. But the idea is to think about like where we first learn about vulnerability and how to trust other people and what happens when that trust is broken. And so for me, that provides a really rich vocabulary, among others, of course, uh, to think about teaching and learning. Well, and so much of school is focused around the acquisition of knowledge, but that knowledge tends to be, you know, facts and figures. And, and that's what a lot of people complain about, about school, right? Is that it's not meaningful, but to think about these emotions, where do we learn to deal with like emotional issues in school? And I would guess probably English, you know, language arts probably does probably the best work in this area in schools um, and social studies, maybe not as much, but you're addressing this in, in your book. Do you want to real quick tell us uh, about your book as you tell us about teaching difficult knowledge? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. A new book, Peter Lang published it. It's called Learning to Be in the World with Others, Difficult Knowledge and Social Studies Education. When we learn about things that we'd rather not know about, it puts us into an interesting situation. And that's what I'm exploring in the book. So it starts out by talking, by tracing Britzman's use of that term and talking about why that's important for social studies so like you said, when we learn about issues like slavery or the Holocaust, famine, um, genocide or war, which is a lot of the so a lot of the history curriculum, then we ought to be thinking about considerations about how this might activate different parts of how we think. And then from there, I also talk about uh, more current issues and the ways that political scientists are actually saying some of the same things about saying, we actually don't make political decisions based on facts. We actually make our decisions based on feeling. And as we've seen over the last six to nine to 12 months in our own political um, climate, that this is really playing out. So I, I take a look at a more recent upheaval like post Katrina New Orleans. And then I talk about teacher education spaces quite a bit too for secondary social studies educators. So the book's written for teacher educators, 
and teacher education students and also practicing social studies teachers. And viewers like you. Yeah. <laughs> or listeners on, like you, I guess. Is the yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> now, when writing this, I imagine, you know, like we all have our favorite our favorite things. Like I have a favorite pen that I write things with. Do you have a favorite <laughs> chapter that you wrote? I do. I do. It really pushed me forward when I was writing a chapter. It's chapter three, and it's called Traces and Narratives About Knowledge evidence and controversy in social studies education. And, and I, and there I, I take up what something that we really like in social studies is controver controversy. So I talk about it in three ways. And one is the, like the social studies wars. So that's kind of like the, the insider social studies researcher insider fighting about stances and approaches towards social studies. That's a pretty small community. But there's also a really big um, public controversy about social studies, which is like what should be in the social studies curriculum. So I'm in Georgia and there are all sorts of controversies about what should be in the standards. So should we teach should we teach about George Washington and how and when? And I talk about how that's always evidence about how we worry about knowledge and how we worry about what will happen when someone knows something. So if we eliminate a more unseemly aspect of American history from the curriculum, I write about how that's evidence of our worry about what that knowledge would do if someone were to know it. Okay. And then the, the other, so that's the public controversy. And then there's controversy in classrooms, which is super interesting to me. And you find super interesting things in the literature like Diana Hess, her work and Walter Parker's work. So there it's all about taking a stand and where we support students to have rational deliberation, which is great and we totally need that. But none of that acknowledges what we're finding out from political science, which is that when we're political beings, we're in an emotional situation. And, and there's a quote that I really like from, a, from an author named Marshall Alcorn, and he says, we seem unable to face the facts about our inability to take in facts. And that's um, that was sort of my favorite stuff to read about and then write about for social studies folks. Mind blown. That's a really <laughs> mind. That's a mind blowing quote. Because mm -hmm. I think it's so true. I mean, we all know that, right? We don't even when we learn something new, we don't often change our minds. Yeah. And it's like and it's across the ideological spectrum. And it even it happens more strongly the more well-educated someone is in a topic. So this the is more called- The they are. Right, so it's called motivated reasoning or cognitive bias, or some researchers call it the backfire effect, which shows that when you give somebody disconfirming evidence for their belief, rather than change or modify be their belief, they actually become more entrenched in their already existing one. So that's the backfire effect. And this is stuff that psycho psychoanalysts have said for a long time. And now the political scientists are starting to corroborate. It's fascinating stuff. To back up a second, you were talking about George Washington and, and some of the unsavory aspects of George Washington. I know this year I was talking with my freshmen and we we're talking about George Washington and slavery. And they're like, oh, Mr. Milton, don't worry. We already know. We were told in sixth grade. And I was thinking, well... Are we doing this in phases that we are kind of like, you know, giving these harder truths about, you know, our so-called heroes? And is that okay? Or should this, like, is there like a, a timetable or an age that we should be telling more of the truth where in the beginning they should only be getting snippets of our founders or any an unsavory aspect of, of 
of society? Yeah, th- those are always really, really thorny questions about how much and when and what's too much and for whom. And the best answer I can give to that is that that has to be couched in particular contexts. So I think that younger children are capable of thinking about issues like fairness or like complexity that people aren't always just one way, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really young kids can get that, but I don't think it's necessarily, and this, is, this isn't this is about Washington, but you know, for things that are more violent or, or something like that, I, I think that there are, like I'm, I'm definitely reluctant to show young children graphic images, for example, but I'm not reluctant to talk about difference and the way that if someone looks different from you, that, you know, that that doesn't necessarily make for a bad person or something like that. But it's like that's one of the questions that comes up time and time again. When when is the right time and how much is too much? And I think that the the frequency of that question is what makes it so important. And what makes it so important not to say, well, here is when you do this and here is what you can't do. Here is what's too soon, because I think that shuts us down. And I think that what we really have to do, our work as teachers is really thinking hard about that with our own students and not looking to answer it in advance. It's an answer that we have to know within a context. That's not very satisfying, I know. (laughs) But it's more truthful. If well, we, I, it, it, you know, it, it's more of like, uh, was it Neo Erickson where things kind of fluctuate? Oh, am I doing that one wrong? I was trying to be psychological like you guys. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Who, what, who, who are you drawing on? Oh, oh, you're to Eric Erickson? Yeah, you know, they have like the hard and fast theories. At three, you are at this. And then there's yeah. like the Neo where it's like, oh, you know, around three, maybe four, maybe five. Whatever, man. The cool thing about Erickson's theory, to me, that's the eight stages of man, not very gender inclusive at that point, but the eight stages of life, which set up through all these conflicts. And what was cool about that, I taught that in psychology class, too. And what was cool for them was to show how it's not like once you go to the next stage that you leave that last conflict behind. So there's always going to be elements of our younger selves and our own selves. And and we're always going to be like going back and forth between maturity and immaturity our adolescence and our youth and now adulthood or back and forth so we're never settled and that's what that's what i take from it and that's what i tried to help 16 17 year olds understand too is that you're never just going to be a grown-up um you're always going to be parts of who you are now and yeah anyway yeah michael you're never going to be a grown-up <laughs> well, I think we know that. <laughs> You know, one of the best classes I took in in college, Professor David Ray at the University of Oklahoma, give him a shout out because he's really was tremendous. And I was so amazed by his ability. It was a class of 75 students and the class was genocide and America Uh, and genocide in the American response was the class. And it, it was really one of the most powerful classes I've ever taken. And we we jumped, we delved into a lot of interesting stuff. I was impressed by his ability to lead discussions on the topic that were meaningful and thoughtful with a group that big, but also to introduce us to so much material that, I mean, completely sticks with me to this day. And I think some of the hard part about it for me emotionally is I just felt like, how can I care about anything else in my life besides this? Like basically one of the people we read about and read about was Raphael Lemkin, who dedicated his life to you know, defining the term genocide and, and creating international law 
for genocide so that it would not happen more. And I've, I've understood that call because it's so terrible. And I think there's a, I had a real difficulty difficulty to this day about how am I just investing a little of my time to this issue? Like, you know what I mean? It's like an issue of scale in my own life. And it's, it's really hard because it weighs on me whenever I get into it. So I almost wonder if I protect myself by, by, by pushing it away at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about learning about the social world is that it's often bewildering, right? And so when we're teaching social studies, if we're doing it well, in my view, we're going to be putting ourselves and our students into this space where they're going to be bewildered. And so like, that's, that's what I'm really interested in exploring is like, what can, what, what kind of experience can we make out of that? And how can we enable a, a thinking about going on and living in the world right now in light of the realities that we face? The alternative, of course, is not knowing about the realities that are out there or disavowing them and pretending like they don't exist. Like we see that happening a lot, too. But um, but I think a more ambitious or a more ethical approach is to say, yeah, like this is this is really difficult. And um, before we think about what should we do now, because that's where people always want to go, the, a question could be like, what is bewildering about this? Like because it makes us feel like we're out of control or is it because of um the uh for me it's the inability to believe that people could let things happen like that's my own personal kind of thing and then and then just talking together about what it's like to learn about something i i feel like you're right i feel like the what can we do about this like action steps you know which i was often i with my students we'd often talk about what can we do in our personal lives like what are larger solutions in our community and what are you know grand scale solutions at national and international levels but i feel like that was almost an emotional out to yeah. like oh we're going to start pointing towards actions because i don't know what to do with all this and i i mean even just talking about it i feel that way uh-huh yeah it's the equivalent of like um writing the check to donate to the charity and say okay i did my thing and now i can go on and like, it's important to note that writing that check is crucial, you know, like we can't, we can't say that we shouldn't do that. And so we shouldn't say that we shouldn't make plans to take action where we are. But yeah, I agree with you, Dan, that if we just do that, then it is a bit of a defense against thinking more about the thing and just saying, okay, I can't think about that anymore. I just have to go do something. And it does feel really urgent. It really does. I remember coming home from uh, a class that I had on Mondays and Wednesdays, uh, a grad class, talking about the Bosnian genocide. And I remember leaving every day thinking like, people are just terrible. History is terrible. There's nothing nice about history. And I was trying to go through things like, I want to learn about something really nice, something happy, like lollipops. And then I got into sugar, which then brought me back to like Haiti, which is, <laughs> you know, it, 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 there are just so many terrible things. And yeah, that urge for me to want something nice, to feel something nice, because yeah, I was hurting. And mm -hmm. even when I, you know, we talk about, again, the Holocaust at school, that week is a hellish week for me, or whatever, however long we, we spent on it. It's hell. It's mm -hmm. really emotionally taxing. You know, my wife definitely can feel that we're talking about something different because I'm in a different headspace than I typically am. Because, you know, it's like four periods talking about this really, really heady, heavy uh, topic, which is so complex and it's just, it's tough. And I, 
I would like to do it better. And I think realizing, acknowledging that it's going to be tough is good. Um, I, strategies are always helpful. I don't know. I'm looking for for anything, Jim. And Michael, if I can piggyback on that too, I, I wonder if there's almost, you know, like other professions face tragedy in different ways. You know what I mean? Um, when you think of like the medical profession, you can lose patients who die and you have to figure out my, my twin sister is a hospice doctor. And so she is around death every day. And I, I want, is that part of teaching is that we also have to find our emotional place to do it effectively where we somewhat separate ourselves? Cause I, I remember even telling my students when we would study the Holocaust, it was okay to cry. It's okay to feel emotions, you know, during this, but I did, you know, I didn't really model it. I don't know if I emotionally had it in me to like sit there and, and lose it in front of my class, um, which is kind of what should happen sometimes when you're facing these bewildering, you know, genocide in particular is the issue I really think of. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things that I want to say here. And one, one is that, you know, you're looking for anything. I mean, one of the things that I always try to include are the ways that people resist and the ways that people resisted in Nazi Germany or the ways that they resist now, or like you going back to George Washington, there were already abolitionists. It's not like, it's not like there was a, you know, unified universal view about how things should be in any context. And so there are, there are always these heroic stories that I find very uplifting, even in the face of tragedy. Um, it's not a lollipop, you know, but it is, but it is something to say, like people do intervene in their situations to varying degrees of success. And I think that's really important. Social workers, nurses, hospice workers, doctors, are, we're, and teachers were all part of helping professions. And I think that in social work and in medical school, um, people get training um, to a degree in the emotional burden of the work. But in teacher education, that's largely ignored. There's typically not dedicated space to, in a teacher certification program, to give attention to like, what do you do when you feel so overwhelmed with fill in the blank. It could be the curriculum like we've been talking about. But more often, I think, it's you're overwhelmed by a student who's causing you trouble, or you're frustrated by a colleague or an administrator, or that you learn about someone's difficult home situation. And those are things that we're not very prepared for. So it's not just the curriculum of history. It's also the curriculum of living life in schools with hundreds and thousands of other people who have tragic circumstances too. And so, yeah, I think that's under attended to in our initial certification programs is preparing teachers for the reality that this is an intellectual demanding, intellectually demanding profession. It's a physically demanding profession. It's also an emotionally demanding profession. And there aren't many, not many professions that have all three of those demands. So Jim, I think it's a really incredible topic because I do don't think it gets a lot of attention is very important. What what advice do you have for teachers to besides buy your book? Obviously, <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you have for teachers to start um, thinking about how they can address this and teacher educators, too? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, if, if people are interested in the topic, the, the book it does explore the topic, but it, it does not provide strategies or how to's. I don't want to falsely promise anything with that. And and what I'd say is that um, the how-to is to, to recognize the difficulty and to let your students enter it however they, however they feel comfortable. 
Um, so, I mean, there are strategies that I use that that I feel like are are generative, and they include music, film, literature, and photography to help people think. And so what I do with photographs, for example, is just show a photograph and just ask people to list 10 things that come to mind. The first 10 words that come to mind when they look at a photograph, a difficult, provocative photograph, for example. Um, and after they've had a chance to do that, I'll go around and I'll have everybody share out one. Okay. And then after everyone's had a chance to share one out, I ask him to do it again and say the same word and to ask the other students in a classroom to listen to what their classmates are saying and for them to nominate one of those words that they want to talk about. So rather than say, like, why did Dan, why did you choose that word and talk about it? I ask you to choose someone else's word and say, like, what stands out to you about that word? What do you want to know about it? And that way it sort of it opens up the possibility for interpretation. And then after a few people chime in, I ask the person who actually said that word to explain why they chose it. And I repeat that a few times. It takes five minutes. But that kind of thing opens a classroom up for interpretation. And it prevents us from saying like, well, here's the final answer. And anytime we can practice extending that moment where we're in trying to make sense of something, I think that's kind of the the tip. That's kind of the trick that I would advocate for, that sort of prolonging of the question. That's interesting because, so I guess I did get a little training in this in my teacher ed to give uh, props again. I guess I got an okay education. Um, my my mentor I worked with at OU, uh, Dr. Neil Hauser, he did a lot of some he did some simulation activities that really play on your real emotions during it. And the first thing he always had us do after was talk about. Uh, he would say say one word, you know, that came about from it because he wanted to allow us space and time to emotionally kind of reflect on what just happened. And I always thought that was such an important part of the game. But I guess I didn't maybe I didn't make that connection between what we were saying and so. Got a little. Yeah, those are really, his work is terrific. You're lucky to have studied with him. Those sorts of activities that let people associate. So ask like, what comes to mind? What thoughts do you have? What is the range of emotions you can imagine people having? That kind of question that gets the person off the hook a little bit. Well, it's not my reaction, but I can imagine someone thinking this is terrible. I can imagine someone thinking this is great. Just giving people permission to have different ideas, the more difficult it is, the more space people need to kind of take the chance to risk having an idea. Because, you know, people, students will always worry. I mean, like if I say this, um, how will it sound to other people? I mean, there's, there's always so much going on in the classroom. And there's probably some issues even around, you know, like masculinity, even in high school, because there's so much performance about guys like not being vulnerable and being tough and and so that's probably a whole nother issue is getting getting, you know, um, some guys who've fallen into that box a little bit to, to feel free opening up and being vulnerable. Yeah, totally. I think that's I think it's definitely understanding that all those dynamics in classrooms and it's going to depend on the topic. So like the racial dynamics, class dynamics and gender dynamics are always going to be at play. But I think if we're talking about like current political issues, those are difficult to navigate as well. And giving people time and space to say how they feel about what someone has said is a way to give people permission to talk about that emotional content without saying like, Hey, how do you feel about that? 
Like, what does that make you feel? You know, people don't kind of people don't like that all the time. So there are ways there are ways to navigate there there are ways to navigate that that masculine defense against articulating emotion. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Listen, thank you very much for coming on today. I feel like you've given us quite a bit to think about, and I don't think that our discussion is over because I feel like part of the point of this is to have the discussion. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that this is something that, you know, with your colleagues or this is to the listeners, I guess, with your colleagues or friends, like have the conversation, talk about acquiring difficult knowledge or helping students acquire difficult knowledge. And how do you, how do you handle it? How do you prepare your students? How do you prepare your classroom? So again, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy your guys' podcasts. Thanks for having me. And we enjoy being enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> and Man. you, we also enjoy you. We also enjoy editing. Um, <laughs> Jim, Jim, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Well, my email address is hjames at uga.edu. And I would encourage anybody to email me. Um, I've got an academia.edu page. Um, and I'm at Twitter at hjamesgarrett. Um, and you can check out the book, um, Learning to Be in the World with Others, Difficult Knowledge and Social Studies Education at any of your preferred online retailers. Wow. That was good. And we'll make sure to put links on our show notes that people can click right on. Awesome. So we'll definitely continue the discussion online. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it too, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something exciting, creative, interesting, or you just want to chat, hit us up at Visions of Ed. That's our Twitter handle. We're also on Facebook. We're even on Pinterest. I don't know why we're there, but we are there. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever your podcast needs are met. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. It helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. We also enjoy editing. 